This morning, Acts chapter 7, we've got a lot of ground to cover. So look to the person next to you and say, wake up. Okay, we got 53 verses to go over. We're going to begin by reading verse 52. We're going to pray and then dive into it. Does that sound good? Are you guys with me? Are you ready? Okay, verse 52b, this is God's word and it says, And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Everyone say just one. Of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Father, once again, we come before you. We acknowledge your word is living and powerful. We acknowledge that you're here among us. And we give you, Lord, the seat of honor. Would you speak, Lord? Would you have your way? In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. Amen. Yesterday, I found myself on trial. My wife was both my accuser and my judge. We were on our way on a hike, the whole family, and um, I was eating some popcorn in the car. And I was putting my hand, well, she actually gave me the popcorn, and I took the popcorn, I was eating it, and then I did this thing with my fingers. After I put it in my mouth, I kind of went like this. And like that popcorn residue in the crumbs just straight onto the floor, and my wife gave me the look. Like, come on, you guys know, the look. She was giving me the look, the judging look, the look of like, how could you? Now at first, like you might, if you don't know my wife, you would think that my wife is the uptight one in this relationship. But I'm leaving a little bit of the story and the context out. Because in reality, I'm the uptight one in the relationship. She's like the chill one. And leading up to this moment, for about five minutes in the car, my poor wife, who wasn't feeling that good and was kind of hungry, she was just trying to eat some popcorn. So she was actually the one leading up to this moment that she was eating the popcorn. And the entire time, and she's just like, just like quietly eating popcorn. The entire time, I'm like looking at her, complaining, saying, honey, don't get it on the floor. Don't spill any popcorn. Honey, don't get any crumbs on the floor. And so I'm doing this the entire time. And then she offers me a piece and I put it in my mouth and then I put the crumbs on the floor. It was definitely warranted the look. But I was on trial. But this is the thing. I was on trial for breaking my standards, not her standards. I was on trial for breaking the very standards that I was telling her to uphold I wasn't upholding. Here I was, found guilty. She got me. Well, today we too, we're going to witness a trial here in Acts chapter 7. The person on trial is a young man named Stephen. He's a deacon of the Way Church, a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. He's a bold and wise young man. And he's being accused of blasphemy on four accounts. Just like I was judging Veronica by standards I could not uphold, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, were judging Stephen by standards that they could not and would not uphold. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're literally going to enter into the story and we're going to sit kind of as jury witnessing this trial. But as a result of this inconsistency within the trial, the trial leads to conflict. And in this trial, we're going to witness three things. We're going to witness, number one, Stephen's sermon. Number two, Stephen's summary. And number three, Stephen's savior. Stephen's sermon, summary, and savior. That sound good? Are you guys with me? 
You're called to jury duty. We're going for it. Okay, we're going to begin with Stephen's sermon. Beginning in verse 1. The high priest said, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers. Everyone say fathers. Brethren and fathers, listen. It's important to note that Stephen's sermon is a response to the high priest's accusations. As I mentioned, Stephen is standing in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin, the same group of people that Jesus stood on trial in front of. And Stephen is on trial for four accounts of blasphemy. Blasphemy against God, blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, and blasphemy against the temple. And so in response to these accusations, Stephen's defense, or his sermon, which really is a defense, follows the same pattern. We see him methodically give a defense of God from verses 2 to 16, to a defense of Moses from verses 17 to 36, a defense of the law from verses 37 to 43, and a defense of the temple from verses 44 to 50. Now take note, again, Stephen's not giving a defense for himself. He's not making a stand to create conflict, quite the opposite. Stephen's response to this sermon is an apologetic defense, contending for the faith in a tactful and brilliant manner. He's laying out the evidence that the God of glory, Moses, the law, and the tabernacle all point us to the person of Jesus. In each defense, Stephen affirms what he's being accused of. He affirms his belief in God, the importance of Moses, the law, and the temple. He shows incredible insight into his knowledge and conviction of Scripture. But upon close examination of this sermon, we find a few important patterns emerge within his sermon. The first pattern is a pattern of revelation, And the second is a pattern of rejection. We will see these patterns unfold in each one of its defenses. Are you ready? Okay, jury, here we go. Number one, the defense of God. Let's read verses 2 to verse 8. And he said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to land that I will show you. Verse 4. And then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them for a hundred years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. Here, as he begins his defense of God, remember, he's been accused of blasphemy against God. And so he begins his defense of God by referring to God as the God of glory. Everyone say glory. Glory. Now, the glory of God meant a lot to the Jewish people. The glory of God appeared to Moses after their exodus from Egypt. The glory of God then dwelt in the tabernacle in the wilderness and would later dwell in the temple. 
the glory of God or the presence of God is what separated the Jewish people from the other nations. And by this point in Israel's story, to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish leaders of the day, the glory of God had become synonymous with the temple. To the Sanhedrin, no temple meant no God. So in each one of Stephen's defenses, he weaves in this thread to correct their thinking. Here is the first pattern, the pattern of revelation. He begins by revealing or or considering or calling God the God of glory and reveals the God of glory, revealing himself outside of the temple to a man named Abram. So God is literally revealing himself to the father of the Jewish people, the one who from the descendants of Abraham, the entire Jewish nation was formed, Stephen is reminding his listeners that the same God of glory that they worship was the God who called a pagan worshiper named Abraham out of Mesopotamia to follow him. That Abraham received a promise, a promise of a people and a place. And this promise that the God of glory gave to Abram wasn't based on Abram's good works. It was a promise based on faith. Okay? So first, our first pattern comes up here, the pattern of revelation. But as he continues in the defense of God, we'll see the second pattern. He then moves from Abram to Joseph. In verse 9, we read this. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all of his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And the second time, everyone say second time. And the second time, Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamar, the father of Shechem. As we consider now Stephen transitions from Abraham to Joseph, the first pattern, the pattern of revelation continues. In verse 9, we're told that Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt. Yet, notice carefully what it says. God was with him. Everyone say with him. In other words, Stephen is showing his hearers that the God of glory was not with the fathers or the patriarchs in the promised land. The God of glory went with Joseph into Egypt, into the presence of Pharaoh. He's showing that God is revealing himself once again, not in a temple, not in a place, not in a promised land, but is showing himself wherever he wants, whenever he wants, because he's God and he can. But here in the life of Joseph, the second pattern emerges, the pattern of rejection. Stephen rightly paints Joseph as a suffering deliverer, a deliverer who is first rejected by the patriarchs and later received by them. Notice this. According to verse 13, Stephen specifically points out that it was the second time that Joseph appeared to his brothers that his brothers received him. So his brothers come to Egypt where Joseph goes from, remember, he goes from the pit to the prison, to the palace. It was through suffering that God raised him up to this place of prominence. And the, fa- the, the, the patriarchs, the fathers, the brothers of Joseph come, and the first time they don't recognize him. 
But the second time, Stephen says, it was upon the second time that they received him. Already here, we're seeing these parallels that Stephen is making to Jesus. The parallels to Jesus are becoming evident. You see, when Jesus first appeared to his people, the people of Israel, they rejected him. But the prophet Zechariah promises that at his second coming, when Jesus returns again, then his people will be ready to receive him. Nevertheless, the patterns of revelation and rejection continue on to Moses. So let's go now to Moses, the defense of Moses from verses 17 through 36. Remember, he was being accused of blasphemy against Moses. So he goes on to speak about Moses. In verse 17, we read, When the time of promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they may not live. At this time, Moses, everyone say Moses. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. Verse 25. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? One another? But, he who did, but he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. So Stephen breaks down Moses' life into three groups of 40. The first 40 years, the second 40 years, and the third 40 years. And the first 40 years, he just he draws this picture. He brings us back to Moses' origin story. And we actually find out that around 40 years old, Moses gets this revelation from God that God is raising him up to be a deliverer. So he goes and he visits his people and he sees the oppression and he tries to take justice into his own hands. He tries to bring justice by force, by killing. Killing the Egyptian. And he expects to be received by his people for this act of justice. But he was surprisingly rejected. Moses ended up fleeing from his own people into the wilderness. And it was there in the wilderness, however, that Moses called, or that God called Moses. And Moses experiences another revelation. So remember our pattern revelation, rejection. Now God's going to reveal himself to Moses again. Let's read from verses 30 on. It says, when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of a fire in a bush. So Moses is around 80 years old now, in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. Here, Stephen reintroduces this pattern or this thread of revelation. Once again, the God of glory was appearing, but not in a temple. 
Instead, from a flame and a fire in the bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. It's in the wilderness that the Sanhedrin's beloved Moses meets God and is called by God. So, he receives this calling. He has this divine revelation. And he goes back a second time to his people in Egypt. Okay? Pick up in verse 35. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and he delivered by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he'd shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Upon his return to Egypt to deliver his people, after this divine revelation, he was still met with resistance even upon the second time. But eventually, on this second time where Moses appears to his brothers, his brothers finally receive him. It took him doing a bunch of miracles and signs in order for them to do it, but he does. And he ends up delivering them out of Egypt, you know the story, across the Red Sea and into the wilderness. Nevertheless, this pattern is continuing. Revelation, rejection, revelation, rejection. And so then Stephen brings us to the defense of the law from verses 37 to 43. Let's read this. Are you guys still with me? It's a lot. Okay. This is what this is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai with our fathers and the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out in the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during 40 years in the wilderness? O house of Israel, you also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your God Riphim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. Now remember, Stephen was being accused for blasphemy against God. So he affirms, I believe in the God of glory, called Abraham. He was accused of blasphemy against Moses, but he affirms, yeah, Moses was like called by God. Yes, absolutely. So now in his defense against the law, he affirms that the law was given by divine revelation to Moses But it was on Mount Sinai, not in a temple, remember? It wasn't in some holy place. It was in this random mountain that God decided to reveal himself and to give the law to Moses. And then he reminds them this incredible story that as God is giving Moses the law and is revealing the law to Moses, the law that they were all about upholding, he reminds them that at that same exact moment, Their fathers, the rest of Israel, were down the mountain, rejecting the law, rebelling against the law, and making a golden calf and worshiping it. He's reminding them the same story is happening over and over and over and over and over again. He says that they began to worship the creation of their own hands. And this was a little bit of a nod or a wink at the Jewish leaders who were also worshiping the work of their own hands. Now, it wasn't a golden calf, but it was the temple. The Sanhedrin was guilty 
of rather than worshiping the God of their temple, they were worshiping the temple of their God, the work of their hands, okay? So, Revelation, Moses is receiving it. The law, but then they reject the law. The pattern continues here. Now to the defense of the temple from verses 44 to 50. Our fathers had the tabernacle witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? So Stephen continues now. He's been charged with blasphemy against the temple. So he responds to this accusation that he was not anti-temple. He affirms that the tabernacle was given to Moses and the Jewish leaders. He affirms that the glory of God filled the tabernacle and later filled Solomon's temple. But this is the thing. If you know the story of Israel and the story of the temple, yes, God would come and fill the temple and bring divine revelation to the people. But eventually... It was the leaders, the Jewish leaders, the priests of that time that would reject the revelation and the glory of God and they would set up idols within that temple and once again they reject the God of glory. And so Stephen is just continuing this pattern, but I want you to notice this. It was at the dedication of Solomon's temple that Solomon dedicated the structure to the Most High. Everyone say Most High. Here, Stephen uses that phrase to show them that the Most High does not dwell in temples by quoting Isaiah, saying that heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. In other words, Stephen is saying that God is far greater than the temple. God goes wherever he wants and wherever he's wanted. God will not and cannot be in prison or confined to a singular space. This point is so crucial to Stephen's message that one man in the audience by the name Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul, quotes Stephen almost verbatim in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. When he says, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord in heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. So what do we learn here? We learn from Stephen's first main point. We learn that God is not confined to a building. He's not confined to a temple. You cannot place God in a box. Listen, if you've tuned me out for the last 20 minutes, that was a lot, I understand. But now you can perk up and listen a little bit. Because this was their first problem. The Jewish leaders were trying to tame God. They had made an idol out of the temple. Worshipping the temple of their God rather than the God of their temple. And this, my friends, is always what religion will do. And the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they are the poster child for the religious person. They are like the prime case study of what it means to be religious. It was them. Religion will always try to tame God. Religion, religiosity, a moral system... Designed to attain righteousness. Religion, a way of life that exalts 
and places the emphasis on what man must do to achieve. Religion, a way of relating to God on the basis of performance and works. Religion or religiosity will always put God in a box. Because at the heart of the religious person is an attempt to control God by their good works. This is what A.W. Tozer said. This idea of religiosity creeps into the church. And Tozer said this. Christians are infamous for trying to put God in a box. But the God who fits in the box is the God who can be controlled by man. Question. Church, friends, husband, wives, parents, students, do you find yourself tempted to place God in a box? Do you find yourself tempted to earn God's favor and love on the basis of your goodness? Do you find yourself tempted to control God on the basis of your obedience, sacrifice, and devotion? Let me give like a little uh, um, what it, symptom of this religious heart. It's when something bad happens in your life and you're like, but God, I go to church every week. I tithe. I stop doing X, Y, and Z. And I live for you. How in the world could you let this happen in my life? That statement, that heart, that attitude exposes that everything that you're doing for God is an attempt to try to control Him into blessing your life. This is the heart of the religious person. And if that's you, you have fallen from grace and into religiosity. You've abandoned God for the work of your own hands. Now you might say, I didn't put God in a box. God put Himself in His box. The box being the Bible. And there's some truth to that idea. God will never contradict his word. But at the same time, notice this. The religious people, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders, they were experts in the scriptures. They almost had the entire Bible memorized. But they picked and they chose what versions of God they wanted to serve rather than serving the God of the Bible. And oftentimes, we can do the same exact thing. Some... Some religious people, they focus on the holiness of God and downplay the mercy of God. And they say things like this, God will not and cannot bless those sinners. Even though that the Bible says that God makes it rain on the just and the unjust. So they pick and choose what verses they want to follow. Then others are tempted to go the other way. Others are tempted to neglect the holiness of God and only focus on the love of God. And they say things like, God would never judge me, man. He loves me. He loves you. Get that judgment out of here. And they pick and choose what portions and parts of the Bible that they want to follow. But when you really see the God of the Bible, that God is both completely holy and completely loving, when you see that God is totally transcendent and completely personal at the same time, when you see God as who he really is, you realize that you cannot put him in a box. That he is far greater and grander and amazing that he exceeds any of our expectations. But the religious, we do this. And I say we because the religious person lives within every single one of our hearts. The religious, they're obsessed with building their own kingdom and their work of their own hands. Which brings me to another little stage of application here. I want you to notice the, promise, or the, the pattern here of the religious person. God reveals something to them, but then they reject what God reveals and it leads to rebellion. And in studying for this portion of scripture, I just sensed this from the Lord. 
that for some of you, God has revealed something to you recently. Now, some of you, he's revealed to you a sin that needs to be repented of, or a liberty that needs to be laid down, or a habit that needs to change, or a person that needs to be forgiven. For others, he's revealed to you that it's a step of faith he's calling you into, a ministry where he's desired for you to serve in, a place where he's calling to you, or a sacrifice of your time he's asking you to surrender. God has revealed this to you, but rather than receiving the revelation, you've rejected it. You've rejected the word of the Lord and you said, I don't have time for this or my sin's not really that bad or I don't know if he's really calling me into this. And instead of receiving what God's doing in your life, you're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. Which brings us then to Stephen's summary in verse 51. Quickly in Stephen's summary, we read this. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Eleven times in this sermon, Stephen used the term father. Everyone say father. Father. He begins his sermon by addressing the Sanhedrin as father and brother. In the course of his sermon, he uses the phrase our father eight times, each time exposing the hypocrisy of the patriarchs or the fathers. But finally here in verse 51, he transitions from our fathers to as your fathers did. So do you. Stephen here lets the word of God out of its cage and allows the spirit to convict the Sanhedrin. The religious leaders are now sitting on trial judged by God's word. Now we've been witnessing this courtroom case. First Stephen was on trial, but now we're seeing that it's actually the Sanhedrin who are now sitting on trial. They, like their fathers who resisted the Holy Spirit by rejecting Joseph and Moses, they resisted the Holy Spirit by resisting Jesus. You see, all of this history was not only a pattern of Jesus, but Jesus is the fulfillment of all of it. Jesus is the greater Abraham who left his home for a foreign land. God gave Abraham a promise that from his seed would come these descendants and there would be blessing to all nations. Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. Yet the Jewish leaders missed it. Jesus, the greater Joseph, who left his home and father, who was betrayed and left and died, but through the most horrendous suffering and evil, brings the most glory and good. Jesus is the greater Joseph, who suffered and died on the cross, but through the cross brings and was raised to life in glory, and all of us can experience the goodness of God, the person of Jesus. Jesus, the greater Moses, who is also protected by genocide as a child and raised up by God to deliver his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses, not just to deliver us from a place, but deliver us from the bondage of sin. Jesus, who is not given the oracles of God, but who is the Logos, who is the word of God. Jesus, who, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but came to fulfill them. Jesus, who did not come to destroy the temple, but house the very glory of God with human skin, who came as the ultimate sacrifice to purchase us access into the throne room of God. Jesus fulfilled the temple. There's no need for a temple anymore because the temple was a sacrificial system to get into the presence of God. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice for us, the ultimate high priest. And now through the shed blood of Jesus, we can experience the presence of God anytime. The person of Jesus revealed all of these things, yet they rejected him. 
This Jesus, the greater prophet that Moses prophesied of, when he said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This prophet, the greatest prophet, the fulfillment of it all was revealed to the Sanhedrin, to the Jewish leaders. They heard him, but they rejected him and they rebelled against him and they murdered him. At this moment, Stephen summarizes his sermon by literally flipping the script onto the Sanhedrin. The Jewish leaders were now on trial and they were found guilty. But notice this. The Jewish leaders are found guilty to the same judgment that they accused Stephen of. The words of Jesus couldn't be more fitting when he said, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Listen, if you've tuned me out again, I understand. It's been a lot of scripture. This is the time to reel it back in. Because we've witnessed Stephen on trial. But now we see that the Sanhedrin are on trial. And now for a second, I just want to put you on trial. I want you to sit in the defendant's seat for just a moment. Because religiosity, self-righteousness always has a way of condemning itself. You see, no judge can perfectly uphold the standards that he uses to judge. So this is what I want to do as you are sitting in the defendant's seat, as you're on trial. Imagine you're sitting in front of a judge. And rather than listing out accusations, the judge simply played a recording of every single time you told someone how they should live. And they played that recording of your words back on yourself. Would you be able to stand? Have you really upheld the standards that you place on other people? You see, the standards that you hold for other people, do you really, really hold them for yourself? Regardless if you're constantly judging others by Christian standards, or if someone dragged you in a church today, and you're constantly judging others by the new kind of progressive virtues that go around today, you're telling everyone else who they should live and vote for, and the way that they should think, and all those different things. If those words were played back against your life, would you be able to stand? Have you upheld everything that you are asking others to live for? And if you're really honest with yourself, the answer would be no. We don't. We ask others to help hold a standard, just like I was telling my wife to in the car, that I fail at upholding. Now, you might not consider yourself religious, but at the heart of religion is a person who judges others by a standard that they themselves cannot keep. And in fear and in shame of being exposed, they cover up their own mistakes with good works or sacrifices. They atone for themselves. So you tell someone else how to live, then you blow it, and then you're really nice to the person to cover up because you know what you did. This is at the heart of a religious person. This is what the Apostle Paul will say in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, as you sit there in the defendant's seat and you consider your own life and the way that you judge others, you ask yourself, do you really uphold those same standards? You'll probably find yourself guilty. You'll also probably find yourself trying to attain this type of standard by doing really good things. But in reality, they only cover up, they don't cleanse all the air and the sin and the wrongdoing. 
that you do in your private life. Which brings us to Stephen's crux of his sermon. Very quickly here, Stephen's Savior, verses 52 to 53. It says, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. Everyone say just one. Of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. Stephen says, you have not kept the law you desperately try to uphold. Nope, instead you killed the one who did keep it. The just one, the righteous one. Jesus, the better in fulfillment, the better Abraham, the better Joseph, the better Moses, the fulfillment of the law and tabernacle. He is the righteous one. This term, the righteous one or the just one, isn't found anywhere else in Scripture. Therefore, we see it's the climax and focal point of Stephen's sermon. This is the thing about the just one of Jesus. You see, there's two ways to be justified by the law. Yesterday, when I went on a hike, I saw a no trespassing sign. I had the option either to cross that line or to stay on the correct side, right? Two options. Now, if I stayed, which I did, if I didn't trespass, if I didn't cross the line, I'm righteous. I'm just. I'm not guilty, right? But we've just seen for a second that all of us have placed these standards in life that we tell other people not to cross, but then we cross them. And we fail. And we trespass. So we can't be righteous then. But there is another way to be justified by the law, and it's this. That if I cross that trespassing line, then I may have to pay a penalty for my crime. And if I pay the penalty for my crime, then I'm no longer guilty. I'm free, I'm righteous, I'm justified. Right? Well, you see, Jesus is the ultimate righteous one. He's the ultimate just one. Because he was and he is perfect and obedient to the law, he never trespassed. He never crossed the line. But we, on the other hand, we have. We, even against our own standards, we've failed. We've erred. And our debt, the penalty for trespassing, is death. So Jesus, the righteous one, the just one, he came to pay the debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay. He who knew no sin became sin that we would become the righteousness of God. The qualified the one qualified to judge became the judge that we might be free. That we might be declared righteous. It was through his death, it was through his suffering that Jesus, the just one, became the judged one so that we who were judged can live justly. This is the deliverance that Jesus offers. Tim Keller points out, every other savior, Joseph, Moses, David, Delivered their people in spite of rejection and suffering. But Jesus Christ delivered his people through his rejection and suffering. And this is what religious people hate. This is what the religious person in us hates. Because the religious person in us says, I've got it under control. I'm good. Maybe I mess up a little bit, but I've worked my way. I've, I've attained. I've, I've done some good works. It covers all of that stuff. But what Jesus does, what grace does, what his righteousness does, it says in order to experience his righteousness, we have to uncover the rejection, the rebellion, the sin. 
Because it is only through Jesus going through our sin, our rebellion, our error, and our wrongdoing that he offers redemption. So the Sanhedrin, they were trying to cover up all of their failures of their fathers in the past. What does Stephen does? do? He uncovers all the rebellion and rejection. Because it's only through the uncovering and the exposing of their sin that Jesus enters into sin to redeem us from sin. Friend, if you're caught up in this attitude of religiosity, our Jesus, he offers you grace today. But in order to experience his redemption, his grace, you need to peel back and be honest that you haven't lived up to the standards that you're putting on other people. You need to humble yourself and realize that you are in need of a savior. This is what the religious resists. To experience this type of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus requires humility to confess our own hypocrisy and failure to uphold the very standards that we hold others against. This time I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to close. But all of this sermon can be summarized in this idea that God resists the religious but he redeems those who are in need of rescue. Friend, question. Are you judging others by a standard that you cannot uphold? Do you recognize the own hypocrisy in your heart? Listen, the judgment of God is good news, as we saw on Wednesday night. Because to have a standard is important. We live in a culture right now. It's like, I'm the judge. You're the judge. I've got my standard. You've got your standard. Don't mess with me. But that's bad news because if there's no standard, what do you do with the evil and suffering in this world? So there's hope in the judgment of God because Jesus, the just one, he will set all things right and in order. It's through him that true justice and peace will come and reign on this earth. But as we see the righteous and just one, Jesus, we reveal, he reveals something. That we fail to keep the standards that we place on other people. That we're in need of a Savior who would enter in, that would pay the penalty, that would cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness and our hypocrisy so that we could be forgiven and redeemed. And friend, this is what Jesus offers. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are, that you sent your son as the just one to live the life we can't live, to die in our place that we might be forgiven. We thank you that, Lord, you're alive and working today. And Father, I pray for those that have been trying to trust in themselves, their own righteousness, their own works, their own goodness, but realize that there's so much hypocrisy in their hearts. Father, I pray that they would turn to you. Father, I pray for those that know you but have fallen into self-righteousness. They're back on this, this, this hamster wheel of earning your love and your grace and they're constantly judging others but there's hypocrisy in their hearts. Father, would you lead them to a place of, would your kindness lead them to repentance that they may just sit and wonder at your marvelous grace. Lord Jesus, we love you, we welcome you. In Jesus' name, everyone said, amen. I invite you to stand with me. As we close out here in, uh, in worship and in praying for this message and praying for you, 
I believe that there's a threefold response. And our time is going to be short, but, but this is what I want to share with you. Number one, there are some people here who have been trusting in themselves, their own standard and their own righteousness. But I've come to realize that they are condemned by the very standard that they try to uphold. They're hypocrites. There's hypocrisy in your heart. And you know it. And you've been trying to trust in yourself. To that person, I want to invite you to trust in Jesus. He will not only cover your mistakes, but he will cleanse your mistakes. He will erase and wipe out your error and your wrongdoing. And he will offer you life. You simply must humble yourself and say that you're in need of a savior. And Jesus will rescue you. The second group is a group of you who've trusted in Jesus as your savior, but you've fallen into self-righteousness. You've been so busy judging others that you've fallen from grace. You tell other people to be loving, but you're not that loving. You tell people to be forgiving, but you're not that forgiving. You You tell people to be joyful, but you're not that joyful. You put on a smile. And in an attitude of religion and self-righteousness, you don't let anyone see the air and the hypocrisy and the pain in your own heart. To you, today is a day to repent and to receive his love, his unending grace and mercy. That you don't have to put on the fake face. You don't have to live under this weight of judging others. But you can receive the beloved love of the Father. To the third group, there's some of you that God has been revealing something to you. You've experienced revelation. Maybe it's a sin in your life or a step of faith, either one. God's been revealing something to you and rather than receiving it, you've been resisting the Holy Spirit's work. Today, the Holy Spirit just says to you to respond in faith and to surrender to Him. He's going to take care of it. That sin, that step of faith, surrender it to Him. So for the first person, you've been trusting in your own righteousness rather than the righteousness of Jesus, I just, I invite you to place your trust in Jesus during this song, come and meet me up here at the front and I'll pray with you. For the other two groups, those that have fallen into self-righteousness or those that are resisting the Holy Spirit and you're just in need of God's love and grace and you surrender to Him, I invite you to receive prayer during this song. God bless you all.